Thank you for being here. We trust that you've enjoyed and been uplifted by the singing and the prayers and taking of the Lord's Supper. And I pray that those things that we say this morning can be a benefit to you and encourage you to be a good Christian in the sight of God. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to be turning to the book of Matthew in the sixth chapter. A few minutes before we get there, but it'll be where we really, really center our text and our thoughts. As has already been said, this is Father's Day. I wonder, do you know where Father's Day came from? It began in Spokane, Washington. Sonora Smart Dobb thought of the idea while she was listening to a sermon on Mother's Day. She had been raised by her father, and she wanted to show him how special he was to her. And so her father was born in June, so she chose June 19, 1910, to be Father's Day. In 1924, President Calvin Coolidge proclaimed that the third Sunday in June would be Father's Day. And hence, we are in Father's Day. With that in mind, I want to talk with you, if I may, about the subject, Abba Father, the greatest father in the world. And we're talking, of course, about God, our Heavenly Father. And I want to remind you that on three times in the Scriptures, God is called Abba Father. The first time is by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he is coming closer to the cross And he says on that occasion, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14 and verse 26. The cross was coming close. Jesus was dreading it in some senses. And so he calls to God and says, Abba, Father. The second time is by Paul. In fact, the second and third times both that it is used is by Paul. You'll look to the book of Romans in the 8th chapter in verse 15, or look on the screen. Paul says, For we did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then look over, if you would, to the book of Galatians and the fourth chapter. And in verse 6, And Paul again writes and says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. One thing that struck me is that here in the first passage is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, calling God His Father. And then in the last two, it's Paul telling you and I as Christians that we can call God Abba, Father. Father. Abba Father is a passage or is a statement that suggests to us a personal and affectionate relationship. 
What I want you to see is that we have the right to call God Abba Father, just like Christ did. And that it's suggesting that we can have a very personal and very affectionate relationship with the Almighty God that dwells in heaven. God is the greatest Father. On at least two occasions, the Scriptures speak of God in comparison to a human father and shows that he is greater than what we have as human fathers. Look, if you would, first of all, to the book of Matthew in the seventh chapter and verse 11. Jesus says on that occasion, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to you who ask? <coughs> He's comparing himself or comparing God to our fathers. And he says, we as fathers, we give good gifts, know to do good gifts, but sometimes Maybe our gifts aren't quite as good as we want them to be, or maybe sometimes we give a gift and it's a little bit selfish. But he says, but God, he knows even more and better how to give good gifts. And hence, we know with the Father, we have the very best that there is as a Father. Then secondly, if you look over to the book of Hebrews and the 12th chapter, the writer in Hebrews 12 and verse 10 says, For they indeed for a few days chasten us as it seems best to them. That's talking about our earthly fathers. They chasten us and they do what seems best to them. But it says, But he for our prophets that we may be partakers of his holiness. So you have fathers on the earth. They're trying to do good, but they don't always get everything right and so forth. But he says, Here's the Father from heaven. And he always has our interest at heart, and he does what's very best for us at all times. And so if you compare God to our earthly father, no matter how good our earthly father is, we are better off with God. With that in mind, I want us to ask this question. What makes God a good father? Here, we're told we can call him Abba Father. Here we're told how good he is. He's even better than our earthly fathers. So what makes him so good? And I want to suggest to you that maybe we find the answer in Matthew the 6th chapter in what's called the Lord's Prayer. And I don't suggest that this is, this is actually made for this reason that he was saying, look what a good father I am. But I suggest to you that in that psalm, or in that prayer, he does tell us the things that makes God a good father. And so let me suggest to you that one of the things you see is that God is holy. That in that passage, he tells us, hallowed be your name. And that's just a way of saying God is holy. God's name is holy. That is, that's who he is. That's what his character is. He is holy. In the book of Psalms, in the 119th chapter, you remember that the writer says, holy and reverend is his name. And 
we use that passage oftentimes just to tell people, well, you shouldn't use his name in vain. But it's really more than that. It is again saying holy and reverend is his name. And his name stands for who he is. And he's saying so he is holy and he's reverend. If in another passage, if you would, in the book of 1 John, in the first chapter, verse 5, <coughs> and I think you see him on that occasion giving us more insight as what he means when he says God is holy and reverend. That's when he was telling us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so what is holy is something that is light, something that is no darkness in him at all. And so he's telling us that this is the kind of person God is. He's holy and he's just. And people that are just and fair keep their word. They don't show respect to a person. You remember that in the book of Ephesians in the 6th chapter in verse 4 that one of the things that Paul told us as, as fathers was not to provoke your children unto wrath. One way that people do that sometimes is by showing partiality or by being a respecter of persons. Look at the turmoil that was in Jacob of old's house because he favored certain wives and he favored certain sons and caused other sons to, to dislike Joseph and to rise up against him. But with God, there is no respect to a person. He is fair and just to everyone. And God is holiest of all. And that's one of the things that makes him the good father that he is. But secondly, let me suggest to you, he is a good father because he gives. Our prayer that we're talking about says he gives us our daily bread. As you thumb through the New Testament, you've got to be impressed with the fact that God gives us good gifts. In fact, you remember in the book of James in the first chapter, in verse 17, that James talks about every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, in whom there's no variance. He's not going to change. He is the one who gives us good and perfect gifts. In the book of Acts, in the 17th chapter, when Paul was talking to people that, that really didn't know God, you remember they'd even put up an idol to the unknown God, just hoping that they could cover all their bases. And Paul starts out by saying, the God that you don't know, that's the God that I'm declaring to you, because they didn't know the true God. But in verse 25, he tells them, this God is not somebody that, that needs anything from us. See, and he giveth to all life and breath and all things. He's not a taker, he is a giver, he says. And that's one of the things that makes him a good father, is that he's giving us the very things that we need, and he's giving us those good gifts. Look also, if you would, to the book of Luke in the 11th chapter. And this is kind of like a passage we referenced in Matthew a while ago, kind of a parallel passage to it. But we get a little further into the giving part, and, and specifically, what are you saying? Uh, get to Luke instead of Mark. Luke 11 and verse 13. And again, the situation is Jesus is, is declaring God unto him. And he says, 
If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So here again, God is the giver. And if we ask him for the Spirit, he's going to give us that Spirit, he says, if we're complying with his law. (coughs) Then let me suggest to you that you look at Ephesians 2 and verse 8, which most of us remember, where he talks about by faith, uh, or through faith, by grace, you're saved. And what grace means is unmerited favor. And so here's God giving again, and what he's saying is, he gives us salvation even when we really don't deserve it. It's out of his grace. It's something that we haven't earned, but that he is giving us on this occasion. While you're in Ephesians 2, in verse 8, looking at that, look on back over to chapter 1, in verse 11, and listen to him when he says, In him we have attained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's giving us an inheritance, he says, in Christ Jesus. And that's, that's the hope of heaven that we're talking about, and that heavenly dwelling place. And we're joint heirs with Christ. If, if you want to grasp how great God is and what a great giver he is, he's promised Christ as he goes back his glory after being on earth and going back to heaven. And now he tells us that if we're in Christ, he will make us joint heirs with Christ Jesus. I just comprehend that for a moment. Now here's Jesus Christ, deity, comes to earth, lives, dies, goes back to heaven. He resumes and assumes again his glory, and he says, I will make you a joint heir with him. And that's the goodness and the greatness of our God and Father Jesus, our God. Not only that, but we find also that God is a forgiving person. All of us need forgiveness. We know that in the book of Romans, in the third chapter, in verse 23, that he tells us we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But he is willing to forgive us. No matter what we've done against him, if we repent and turn to him in the ways that he tells us, he's willing to forgive. Have you ever stopped to really think about, um, and in, the, in our text it talks about he's forgive us for our deeds, But I want you to think about the book of Luke in the 15th chapter and beginning in verse 11 and going through verse 32 for a moment. It is what we know as the the story of the prodigal son. Here's a father that has two sons. One of them says, give me mine inheritance. And the father gives him that inheritance. And he goes away and wastes it in riotous living. Now, we don't get the full intent of that sometimes because we... We think about somebody passing on and giving us an inheritance and so forth. This was an inheritance, and we're told that this person, in asking for his fathers to give him his inheritance, would pretty much just say, you're dead to me. Give me, give me your inheritance or my inheritance. And so he takes that inheritance, and then he just wastes it. All of the, the goods that has been given to him, he wastes it. And then one day he wakes up, he's in a pig pen, and he has nothing to eat, and it comes to himself, the scripture says, and he says, the servants back in my father's house have it better than I do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my father, 
Say, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. Make me as one of your hired servants. He's not even asking to be a son. He says, just make me as one of your hired servants because he realizes hired servants have more to eat than he has at this time. So just make me as one of your hired servants. Don't deserve to be called your father or your son again. Just let me be a servant. And so he's resolved to do that, and he takes off, and he heads back home, and his father sees him, and he calls the servants and says, my son has come back, Uh, put on him a good robe, put on him shoes, and kill the fatted calf, and they begin to have a feast. And so here's the father that's not willing to make him a servant. He's going to restore him to the position that he was. He's going to make him a son again. And he's not going to make him prove himself and then let him be a son. He's just going to make him as a son, as the son he was before. But here's my question for you. Who does that father represent, do you think? Do you think it's it's somebody other than God, our father, that that's the reason that Jesus is telling it? No, Jesus is telling that to help us understand how forgiving our Father is. And that He will treat us in the same way of restoring us, even if we've gotten off the path, that He will restore us back to the position that we were in the beginning as His child if we just come with repentant heart. What a good Father that is that will forgive in that way. But then let me suggest furthermore, He's a good father because he seeks to protect us. Again, if you're reading from Matthew, the sixth chapter, and reading the prayer, he says he delivers us from evil, or the evil one. When you stop and think again, as we're taught and told in the the scriptures, you have to understand how protective God is of us. Look, if you would, to the book of John in the tenth chapter. This is uh, Jesus when he's talking in terms of being the good shepherd and so forth. But he says, my father who has given them to me, God has given him the sheep, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. The father is so strong and so good, no one can snatch him out of the hand. Now, You may surrender yourself to somebody else and leave, but Satan doesn't have the power to come out and snatch somebody from the hand of God if they don't want to be snatched from him. They have to surrender themselves to Satan in order to do that. That's God protecting us. And then you think also about the book of 1 Corinthians in the 10th chapter, how that he promises us with every temptation there's a way of escape and that there's no temptation greater than we can bear. I'll tell you, that's not because of the goodness of Satan, that Satan just looks and says, hey, I'm not going to tempt you above what you can stand. That's God's goodness saying, I'm not going to allow you to be tempted above that that you can stand. I'm here to watch over you and make sure that you're not just overwhelmed beyond what you can bear. That with every temptation, I'm watching and making sure that you can overcome it. Now, temptations will come and try us and give us opportunities to serve or not to serve. 
but none of them are so great that we simply cannot withstand them if we don't want to, or if we want to. That's God's promise to us, and that's his goodness to us. And then you see it in times past, and Peter writes and talks about how that Lot was delivered from that situation he was in. We see him back in Genesis where uh, the people around him are evil and God calls him out of that place and delivers him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's telling us God was able to deliver that person from that wicked environment. And it's there for a reason. You know, you read the story back in Genesis and yet here Peter's telling it. Why is Peter telling it? Not because... He just wants us to know that story again. We could go back in Genesis and read it. He's telling us to show us how good and how great God is and how that he is able to deliver us from all the temptation, from all the evil. That's how good and great our Father is. And that's his desire. He wants to deliver us from all the evil and from all the temptation that we face. I want to suggest to you, if you just stop and think about God, then what a great father he really is. Somebody who is holy, who is just, that's always doing what's right. Someone who gives the best that you can have. Not only somebody that forgives, but somebody that forgives when you go wrong and go astray. And no matter what your intent and how far you get, as long as you really sincerely repent, he's willing to forgive you. And then he seeks to protect you and particularly watch out for you and keep you from being overwhelmed and overcome beyond what you could do yourself. Now, if you're looking to be a good father, maybe you can imitate some of this also, that you can be a godly father. You're not really a good father unless you're a godly father. You're not teaching your family and heading them in the right directions unless you're a godly family. Be one that gives. Uh, there's no saying that to love is to give. And God loves and God gives. And Christ loved and he gave his life. And if we're good, we're going to love. And if we love, we're going to give and we're going to give good gifts. Not necessarily expensive gifts, but good gifts. And then furthermore, we will be willing to forgive our children if we are parents and they are repentant. No matter what they've done, we would, should be willing to accept them back if they repent. And then we're going to do everything we can to protect them. But let me go one little step further and ask the question, what would make us good children? And here's what makes God a good father. What would make us good children? And the same place we're getting other answers from, I think, answers this. We need to be obedient. You remember the, the passage talks about your will be done in heaven and in earth. That's what we need to do. We need to be doing God's will. In the book of Romans, in the fourth, eighth chapter, in verse 14, you have a lot there talking about God, and, and one of the things he says in that 
place is that those that have the Spirit of God dwelling in them are His children. But what does that mean when the Spirit of God dwells in us? Well, over and over he talks about walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, and that's a way of saying we're walking in accordance to the things that He tells us to do. That's what we're wanting to do and, and what we should be doing. And then look at Matthew the 7th chapter in verse 21 when Jesus says, Not everyone who saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. So over and over we find what God wants of us. Here's what he is to us. He's the Abba Father, or will be, can be. But if he's our Abba Father, what does he want from us? He wants us simply to obey him. We talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, the plenitous grace and how that here's David. And we see David make numerous mistakes. But we see also his heart in Psalms 32 and Psalms 51 where he's out of a godly sorrow is repentant of the things that he's done and cries out to God to, to forgive him. And God's willing to forgive him on all of those occasions. And it talks about him as being a man after God's own heart in the book of Acts in the 13th chapter. Why was David considered so as he is? Because he was a man after God's own heart. What do we need to do in order to be a good child of God? Well, we need to have a God after, or a heart after God's own heart, which means we don't turn to the right or to the left. We're content and wanting to do what God wants us to do. Just think of the really precious family where there's unity and, and love. And every one of us can have that in God's family because he is a good father and we can be good children if we just simply make up our mind that we're going to have a heart after his heart and not turn to the right or to the left, but just simply try and do the things that God wants us to do. So here's my, my final question to you. Who's your father? I don't know if you've stopped to think about it, but in the scriptures, there are two fathers talked about. There is God. And in 1 John 3 and verse 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Hey, just stop and think about that for a moment. Here's this great God, and he tells us we can be called his children. And so you can be God's son, God's child. And what blessing it is to be able to say, that's my father. But you can also look in the book of John in the 8th chapter in verse 44, and Jesus was talking to some, and he said, you are of your father the devil. That's who they acted like. That's who they had made their, their father. Wasn't that God wouldn't have had them, but they chose the devil to be their father. And I want to tell you, that's the only two choices that we have spiritually. We can have God, who is a great God and a good God, 
or we can have the devil who cares nothing about us, who is headed toward hell, and his greatest delight is to carry as many of us as he can to hell with him and to rob God of precious fruit. That's his intent. That's what he wants. And so the question is, what, which father do you want? Do you want to be able to say, Abba, Father, talking about God? Or if you're asked, who's your father, if you're actually being honest, you have to point and say, well, the devil's my father. Who do you want as your father? Do you want the good father or the bad father? That's the choice that we have, and that's the choice that all of us make. And if you've not made it yet to make God your father, then I hope you'll choose this day, this time, to come home to God and let him be your father. If you're subject to the invitation in any way, we can assist you. We'd invite you to come here together and stand and sing. I am.